Welcome to the To Your Bible, a custom designed to your Bible reading plan by and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey there. And so this week you have started diving into the book of Judges, which uh, is quite a weighty book, I think, to, to read through. You're going to have about two and a half weeks walking through uh, this book. And so, um, yeah, I, you know, moving into it, I think I've kind of been dreading it since the beginning. I know it would be hard. And if you're really reading it to understand, it's going to be really disturbing. And you're going to spend some time sitting in just the real depravity and sickness and wickedness. And it's depending on what time in our, our country's history you're reading it it's going to feel even heavier. So my encouragement to you as you read this book, as you continue to read it, is not to minimize the depravity and wickedness of what you read, but also to look at this thread of hope that God continues to weave through everything we're looking at. But it's, it's a hard read for me. Yeah. And, and so as you started reading it, hopefully you, uh, maybe you watched the Bible Project last week or um, as you were reading, it started noticing that there's a um, a cycle that happens throughout mm-hmm. the book, or at least seven times in this book. Um, a, a, and there's a cyclical nature, and we'll include a, a link to sort of just the, the picture of it. Um, but um, that that this book is sort of this picture of of um, if I were to think about Joshua to Judges, Joshua is sort of this victory story of the Israelites kind of driving out the Canaanites and taking over the land of Canaan. Judges becomes the Canaanites sort of interfusing with Israel, sort of the reverse story of of Israel's um, willingness to, to to worship idols and and to to, to adopt some of the Canaanite practices, and it's a struggle mm-hmm. uh, for Israel to to ever really break free uh, from from Canaan and their worship and the sin that that seems to be so pervasive in these stories. And so it's also important to note as you read through this book, this is a long history book. Uh, there's about 400 years that this book takes place between all the different judges, all the different times of rest, all the different times of oppression. Um, it, it, it's it's not a short book in terms of the number of years that this thing takes place. And so even though it reads like story after story after story, uh, just know like this is there's there's like time. one verse related to 40 years of rest. Like there right. there are these moments in the book that aren't highlighted because it's not the goal of the book. But but Israel had these moments where it's like ah eighty years, things were well mm, until good. things went down again, and so um, yeah yeah something else to pay attention to is kind of the order and progression of what things happen. So we see these cycles of sin and oppression and repentance and deliverance and peace, like Chris mentioned. But we also start out by seeing Israel first is just neglecting to drive to drive out these pagan worshippers, um, and then we see their leaders head to this moral decline, and then we'll end judges in a couple weeks, uh, seeing the entire corruption of of not all, but almost all of the people and kind of that slow fade into greater and greater weakness, wickedness. Yeah. And we will see them compared to Pharaoh. And I think in one of the lines, we'll see um, a retelling of Sodom and Gomorrah to connect Israel to Sodom and Gomorrah. So it's definitely not presenting Israel as um, positive. It's definitely right. working to present the authors definitely working to present Israel as um, the anti-hero in the story. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, starting in the first story, uh, we, we intentionally sort of pick up where Joshua kind of left off. They are finishing or working through their conquest of Canaan. We even see callbacks to Joshua 15 with the, the Caleb Othniel uh, Axa story. And, and so, um, it's definitely working to, to sort of see a, uh, the, uh, as a continuation of the conquest stories. Yeah, and there's a rule given to Judah here, which is kind of neat because we know that the king will come from the tribe of Judah. And so there's definitely some emphasis on the role that Judah is playing in Israel at this point, though they're not they're not doing 
great. Yeah. And <laughs> and we see that some of the tribes are working to drive out. Uh, they're not always successful. And then we see some of the tribes aren't really doing much. And so um, there's plenty of Canaanites left in the land. If, mm-hmm. if Joshua was a story that's like, yeah, that was our victory and we did so much. We were driving out the Canaanites and, and, and it was amazing and victory after victory after victory. Um, Judges kind of comes around and goes, well... It wasn't quite like that. Like, there's plenty of Canaanites still around that are going to be a, what the book will present, a thorn in the side of the Israelites. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, God reminds them, look, like, you make covenants with Canaanites, you haven't destroyed their areas of worship, so I'm not going to drive them out, uh, and they shall be thorns in your sides. God God's makes it very clear at the beginning of this book, um, these these people and their worship and their gods are going to be a snare for you. Mm-hmm. This is going to be a struggle for you. Um, yeah, and I, and I don't want to jump to personal application too early, but I think let's step back for a second and consider what the current dwelling place of God is. And it's in our own lives. It's in our hearts. It's in our bodies. And so the warning that even we can learn from the very beginning of Judges is that we really need to consider the thoughts and behaviors of our own hearts. Where are we tolerating behaviors or entertaining thoughts that are going to lead us into moral decline. Now, maybe we're not building altars to Baal, but it doesn't mean we're not entertaining um, different idolatrous ideas. So we'll see what comes of these people remaining uh, later on. Sin doesn't start out with them necessarily as huge, but tolerating the little behaviors or the little practices of those who are living in their land um, led to, uh, you know, the total fallout of, of Israel. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's always an interesting theological concept because like we, we are saints we are sanctified currently but we're also being sanctified in mm-hmm. the flesh and so um there's there's a rest to be had like in in that god because of jesus and not because of i mean this book will present the struggle to get rid of sin um on on our own power um jesus does that finally for us but at the same time flesh still has a a a, a role in our lives and so yes like we we have to be we have to put to death like Paul uses stark language to put to death the, right. the, the sins of the flesh. And and so um, our, our work continues like the Canaanite, like, like Israel to, to sort of drive out anything uh, that would not be um, in line with God's desire and kingdom. Yeah. I was thinking about it just a little bit, you know, things like maybe you withhold some of your giving money one month because you, you know, have an extra expense or whatever, no big deal. But then the next month you don't, give again in the next month and suddenly it's a slippery slope or we watch or we listen to media with with language or behaviors that don't value life uh, whether through violence or objectification of people and suddenly these thoughts and these plans are in our minds and in our hearts and they lead us down um, this awful slippery slope of sin I think this book can be a real dire warning to us as people as a whole and as individuals of um, even just an encouragement to purify our hearts because we see what happens when you don't so we get the death of Joshua told again, as it was at the end of the book of Joshua. Uh, and then this one line that I think is such a, a callback. It says, there arose another generation and they did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And I think that's meant to present to us. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. I think it's meant to be sort of this parallel. I'm like, all right, this generation is, is like the the Pharaoh. It, it, it's, it's a connection point to, to start pointing out um, and connecting Israel with kind of the worst of their history. And so, um, yeah, I think that's one of the, maybe the saddest verses in the entire Bible. 
yeah. one of them. It's and, just one generation. Yeah, they're They struggling. forgot to tell the word and they forgot to encourage the people and they didn't practice the law or tell them and then it was gone. Yeah, their generational struggle to continue um, seems seems constant, which is why like nowadays, like you interact at, and tradition and retelling and all that is so vital because uh, I think it's been beat into them for years and years and years uh, that, that this is their struggle. If they don't, if they don't yeah. practice these things, do their festivals, remind their children. Yeah. And, and for those of us who are Christians, we're disciplers. We are yep. to tell, you know, our kids, if you have kids, but we are to disciple the next generation yep. to be God fears and God followers. Yep. It's we'll not, see. let's not be the story. Paul take on a young protege for the next generation, all, all those sort of pictures. And so uh, we hear about Israel's unfaithfulness. Uh, this this chapter two, the sort of second half of chapter two felt like um, a setup for the book. It's sort of explaining the cycle mm-hmm. that's going to happen from here on out. Um, and this idea that um, kingship, that, that they had no king, uh, which um, will play a role as the story continues to go, that sort of question of because they had no godly leader hears the struggle which will ultimately point towards jesus as the the true king yeah Um, yeah and so uh we get our first cycle uh in othniel uh and uh the cycle if if you haven't seen it it's sort of this there's some sort of sin that Israel commits, there's oppression, so there's some group that comes in from outside to, to rule over them. Um, Israel will cry out to God most of the time. We'll, we'll eventually see that break down too. Um, God will deliver them, usually through a, or, well, at least in these seven cycles, through a judge of some sort. And, and just when we say the word judge, don't think of like a robed courtroom kind of person. Uh, these are sort of political, tribal military, kind of leaders. Yeah, kind of leaders over the tribes. And then um or and then they guys who've been excommunicated from their cities yeah, and at live least in the one mountains. Of them is like kicked out. Uh, and then there's peace there's there's peace or rest uh, at the end of the story. And so uh, we have the shortest one in terms of verses right here at the beginning uh, with Othniel. We just don't get a lot of details around the story. Yeah. But we know he's probably following in the leadership of his uncle Caleb and Joshua and so he had a good example. Yep. And so it makes sense that he's the, the first judge to, who rose up to lead. Yep, and then Ehud uh, becomes the second one, uh, and still a bit of a shorter story, but um, yeah, it's it's sort of an unlikely character right away, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and so the details I think about his left handedness and stuff like that. I mean, not only makes him like an odd and sort of unlikely and outside the norm character, but also explains probably uh, by the author of like this is how he snuck a sword into the court right. of the king because they would have frisked him. But hey, if they had the sword on the right side like a left-handed person would, hey, it didn't, uh, he would have snuck it in. And we get the sort of very graphic, Super uh, graphic. story, um, which we get a few times in this book. And they get rest for 80 years, nonetheless, uh, after this one. Yeah. Shamgar. Yeah. Um, so we don't even know if this guy was an Israelite. Am I right? Like yeah, the Song but, of Deborah talks about how he may have been Canaanite, he may have been Hittite or yeah. Hurrian. Which is interesting. Yeah, the the name and all that just comes outside of um, sort of Hebrew for the most part, and so it, as Sarah and I were talking about, sometimes there's just characters, and there's a lot of debate over who this guy could be and isn't. There's a lot of debate over a few verses that ultimately have um, not always the most impact on developing your theology, and so sometimes we we encounter this that the crowd of judges that originally heard this book might have gone, oh yeah, that guy. Where we sort of sit there going, we don't really know who this guy is, and that's okay. Right. Um, I think sometimes we freak out, like, well, we have to know. It's like maybe, and it's okay that we don't. It's not going to affect the theology of the book uh, for us to not. So um, 
if we find out one day exactly who he is, great. I hope archaeology does. And that's fine by me. Yeah. And one of the things I was thinking about is, you know, like maybe he wasn't for Israel and he just was against the Philistines. And as an aside, you know, when he killed all these Philistines, it, it delivered Israel. And, you know, you have people like it's just another picture of how God uses every single person for his purposes and glory. Some of us are on board with it. Some of us are totally against it. And then there's this kind of middle ground of how God uses somebody with completely different intentions still to accomplish his sovereign purpose. Oh, yeah. There's plenty of that in this book, too. Yeah. And in life today. Yeah. And in life today. Uh, and then um, we get cycle number three with uh, Deborah and Barak. Um, and so they began doing what's evil in the sight of the Lord, the refrain that sort of introduces um, all these cycles. And um, yeah. the Canaanites take them over this time. Right. And uh, they do cry out for help. They, they want God to intervene. And so God um, has this judge named Deborah and then this military leader named Barak. And, um, and, and it's sort of not the likely hero. Uh, the, the fact that you would have a women judge would have been fairly unlikely uh, to begin with. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was sort of women in leadership um, over Israel. And so, uh, but she's a great judge in the story. Uh, so much so that Brack's like, I'm not even going to go, I'm not even going to battle if you don't come with us. Um, and, um, and, and there's a setup. I kind of like really how the story's told where it's like, and, and he's going to die at the hand of a woman. And you're like, Oh, Deborah's going to kill him. Like Brack's not going to get to kill him. Deborah's going to kill him. Right. And then, and then he sneaks into this tent and knows this woman and she ends up driving a stake through a skull, which is once again, this graphic uh, details. And so, right. um, yeah, it's such a, it's such a beautiful, uh, portrayal of storytelling and and only that like raising up the dignity of, of women and leadership and in, in story and in bible yeah and i think the the song that they sing gives us a lot more of a clue as to what's going on so these chariots were massive they were iron they were not strong in water so we can assume that they went to battle in the dry season because cicero took all these chariots to basically a dry riverbed because there wouldn't be water there and then you see in the poem that the rain comes down and the river kaishan grows and so basically everything is washed away and so you still see god come in and being the one who goes to defeat the battles. Yeah. Yep. And yeah, they just break into song. We are the champions, right? And yeah. then uh, we find out uh, cycle number four kicks in. The people of Israel do what's evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them to the hand of Midian. And mm. so uh, the Midianites uh, take over for about seven years, not the longest of all of Israel's um, oppression. Uh, but um, yeah, they're struggling. They're not doing well. And this prophet comes along to tell them, hey, you aren't listening. You aren't doing right. what God has told you to do. And you keep going after these other gods. Um, he's pointing out very clearly their struggle and sin. Yeah. And this is really the first time we kind of see God come in and rebuke Israel when they cry out to him. Yeah. He's, he's long suffering. He is patient. Uh, that's how God describes himself. But his patience is wearing thin with these people who keep saying they want to follow him or they want his help, but they do not want to obey him. They do not want to worship him only. Right. And so we get uh, an angel come call this man named Gideon, who uh, an angel describes him as a mighty man of valor, uh, which um, we will see early on. That's probably not the best descriptor of Gideon. It's almost like the angel's giving him this descriptor to to boost him up in some way uh, to be like, are you talking to me? (laughs) Like, am I the mighty man of valor? Uh, It's almost like I can imagine Gideon looking around being like, who are you talking to? (laughs) Right. Um, But, but the Lord is with you. That's that's the the, the refrain uh, that, that that is included in the story, uh, kind of a callback uh, to Moses. Because Gideon sort of acts like 
I don't know if I could just do that. Like I'm the I'm I'm the smallest in my family. My mm-hmm. clan's the smallest in my tribe. It almost feels like Moses and, and the burning bush moment where he's like, "Are you sure it's not supposed to be someone else?" And, and the angel will be like, "No, no, no. It's you. You will be it." And Gideon still struggles and and is willing to be like, "All right, can you give me a sign?" And then he brings this offering, and the angel touches it. It becomes sort of the sacrifice, which I think is really cool too, because Gideon's not Gideon's making a meal in some ways as sort of a that's sort of an offering to this angel who's like, I'm not going to eat it. But then the angel turns it into a sacrifice. Like even in this random story of, of the the downward spiral of Israel, like God is, God's the one who's still going to make the sacrifice. It's like God turns what is not even a sacrifice into a sacrifice for his people in the midst of this. It's almost like we'll see with Ruth. It's like, Hey, in the midst of the downward spiral, there's still these moments where God is absolutely a part of it. Yeah. And, you know, Gideon receiving a name that was not descriptive of who he was at the time, I think it's good for us to remember that we have received this um, word that we are not condemned, like Romans 8 talks about, or that we are adopted. And even if you don't feel like that's true of you, it doesn't change the fact that it's true, because God says, Gideon, you're a man of valor, not because of what you can bring to the table, but because of what I am going to do through you. Yeah, yeah. Uh- uh, m- my perception on Gideon constantly, and 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 some might disagree uh, as as it goes, but like I, I just struggled that Gideon ever really has a whole lot of confidence and and is constantly timid, but he still moves forward. And I think sometimes we hear about these m- mighty battlers and these heroes from the past that like go into battle and go do these amazing things, but but Gideon's like, I don't know if I can do that, but. I'm still going to try and I'm still going to move forward. And and so I think what's presented there is like, God will use all different types. Those that are like brash and, and full of absolute courage and those who aren't. And mm-hmm. and as long as the move forward is, a, but I'm going to trust and believe and, and move forward. Um, I think that's what God desires out of his people. Yeah. So Gideon's first kind of step of faith or act of obedience is to knock down the altar of Baal, but he doesn't do it in the day because he's afraid he does it at night. I still think that this is a super courageous thing to do. I mean, he probably assumes that he's going to die for doing this. Yeah. Yeah. And I, coming off all the stories of all the different courageous conquering up to this point, it feels like, well, you you were just told you were going to take out the, all these Midians. And yet, um, your first act is to kind of sneak around a night, not take care of any Midianites and just knock down an altar. But hey, he still moved forward and did what he was supposed to do. So he does it. He They're about to kill him, but then he doesn't die. And so then yeah. he gives God two more tests. Yep. Hey, uh, here's here's a fleece. If it's wet, great. If it's dry, great. And so he, he just, it's almost as if we'll get to this in the New Testament. Well, we might've gotten to it in Luke, the, the sort of, I believe God, but I need your help with my unbelief. And and God is willing to work with that. I think God is willing to work with his unsure faith right. uh, as he moves forward. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a direct violation of the law, but God still in his mercy yeah, answers his request. It's just total patience for, for Gideon throughout all this. So then they go to battle. Yeah, um, Gideon, who's already not confident, and God's like, hey, uh, I know you have 22,000 here, send about 12,000 of them home, and then you still have too many, and hey, um, go down by the water, it's going to be this weird test, but whoever laps up the water, straight out of the water, send them home, and if they cup their hands, hey, keep those guys. And so it seems like a random test, but hey, it ends up with 300 men for Gideon afterwards, and then God's like, but if you're still afraid, 
you can go down and take your take your servant for a run and spy on the camp. And then like almost the next line is, so they went down to Pur with the servant. Yeah. So it's like, clearly he's still afraid. Uh, he's admitting it even in the storytelling. But um, it's such a fascinating story too, because he gets down there. Then these pagan Midianites are having dreams from, from God. And there's another interpreter who actually interprets it correctly. And that interpretation is about a prophecy that Gideon's about to win this battle. And so uh, it's so interesting sometimes of like how God works within those who aren't even part of his people Mm -hmm. through dreams and visions and prophecy. So, um, yeah, it's great. Yeah. And, you know, did you guys pay attention to see that, like, he didn't go to battle with swords or weapons. They went with a trumpet, a jar, and a torch. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, it's interesting because we don't necessarily get that God told Gideon, here's how you're going to fight this battle. But um, it's pretty brilliant. They they just cause chaos. They they blow trumpets. They they break a bunch of jars. It would have been loud. It would have been chaotic. There's torches off in the distance. Maybe they thought there's way more of an army than there actually was. Um, And and it causes confusion for the Midianites. They all start fighting each other and killing each other in the process. And so um, whatever, whatever, whatever the tactic really was, it seemed to work in this moment. And God gives them the victory. God delivers them in this yeah. process. So ride this way for the week. We're ending judges this time on a, like a pretty high note. Yeah, this um, is and it's yeah. about to, to turn. Yeah, we're not going to get much high, high notes for the rest of the book. So um, we'll get deliverance, but it's not uh, going to be all that great, even when we get it. And so let's go to the New Testament. Uh, we have um, just finished with John the Baptist down by the river, and now we're at like the actual baptism of mm-hmm. the Jesus. And um, I think all the language here is meant to be sort of callbacks. And, and we've seen this sort of in the storytelling up to this point that you have sort of some sort of chaos or some sort of strife. There's there's waters. There's a spirit hovering over the waters, um, and then there's ultimately uh, coming coming through those waters with some sort of like creation or new creation, or recreation or reset of a people. And so Genesis one has that. The flood has that. Uh, the Red Sea has that. Um, the crossing of the Jordan has that. And so um, there's so many motifs that are included that I think Matthew is going out of his way to be right. like, look, Jesus is the better Adam, the better Noah, the better Israel. Like this is all all part of the story and yeah. so and not only that but we see this prophetic fulfillment of jesus as god's son through some of the cross references or the spirit on him and that he will bring forth justice yeah, to the yeah. nations and we, we see the trinity on full display uh, at jesus's baptism yeah. which is great now remember each one of those stories what happens immediately after sort of that that first part of the story is temptation so mm-hmm. adam and eve get tempted noah's tempted um by the vineyard uh we get uh the temptations or the testing of israel in the desert uh we get even uh crossing the jordan they're, they're going to have a victory and will they obey god um and we see with Achan that they didn't and so um we get the same thing and all those were failures and so when jesus goes out to the desert matthew's purposely putting that story there to go, this is what happens next. And I'm sure even like people are like, no, uh, don't go, don't go out there. That hasn't worked well in the past. And right. it's the question is, will someone finally deal with the temptation and, 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 and come through on the other side? Will we finally have a savior? Will there be a better Adam, a better Noah, a better Israel? And, and so there's the tempter and he's bringing up lies or, or challenges or, or temptations for Jesus here, um, in Satan. And, um, yeah, I, I think, I think Jesus's response here is, is the picture because Jesus responds, it is written. I mean, uh, Satan asked 
Eve, hey, what what did God really say? Did God really do that? Would God do that to you? And mm-hmm. and the temptation was there. And, and and what should have been the right response is like, nope, I'm I'm going to listen to what what God has said. And um, I think that's what's on display here. In 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 light of the temptations, what kingdom do you want to fall under? The one of the serpent and the lies and whatever he says and, and what's ever going to be best for you in the moment, such as feeding yourself or ruling over cities or, or all those other things, or will you trust God? Right. And, and, you know, if the Son of God fought temptation with Scripture, that's probably pretty good advice for us. We right. shouldn't fight it with blog posts or opinions. Sometimes those are helpful, but learn the Bible, memorize things that are relevant to what you struggle with, and fight temptation with Scripture. I mean, even James says, like, you know, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Yeah. We resist through our knowledge of Scripture. Yeah. Jesus doesn't respond with, I feel this way. He simply says, it is written. And not only that, but even when Satan sort of slightly misquotes scripture, when Satan gets around quoting scripture in the middle, he, he Jesus is like, nope, that's, that's not, uh, that's, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to buy your lie. And do we know our word enough? Do we know um, scripture enough that like, even if it's just slightly changed, we'll be able to point that out and go, yeah, that's, that's not right. That's not true. It sounds kind of true, but it's not true. Yeah. And he knew it was true immediately too. We didn't have to like mull over it for a while and figure out if there was a way he could justify both. And so somebody finally got into the temptations of Satan and passed uh, that was delivered truly through on the other side by trusting the word, which is great. Proving that he's the Messiah, like Matthew wants to do. Finally, finally, someone's come along as sort of the new second Mm -hmm. Adam to do it. So Jesus sets off um, to call his first disciples at this point, or begin his ministry. So Mm -hmm. um, we we find him set up shop up in Capernaum, which... um, is it sounds like he withdraws, like he's running away from Herod, but he sets up ministry like next door to Herod. To Herod probably would have been living in Tiberias or near Tiberias at the time, um, but he sets up shop there. Um, and, and he quotes Isaiah nine, this, this sort of prophetic chapter that's about a king. Mm-hmm. And, and Isaiah is certainly calling his people, saying, "Hey, there's there's a king, and and he will be born. So we 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 need to repent and and, and live this new way." And I think Jesus is doing the same thing, being like, "All right, like." This is the king. So what will we do with this king? Yeah. And I mean, Jesus's first command to usher in his kingdom is repent. Our relationships with God must begin with repentance. And while we repent and are forgiven for our sins um, one time through Christ's work on the cross, we must live and model and reflect uh, lives that are repentant, constantly seeking God's forgiveness and acknowledging our broken state and why we need a savior. Yeah. And uh, I think, I mean, we even have someone like Luther, who's who's part of his theses is the all of life of a believer is one of repentance, and um, I mean, we'll see this in the Psalms of like, my sin is ever before me. It's like, yes, like we are we are saved in our repentance, but we are being saved in our repentance as well. Mm-hmm. Um, just as the gospel is, it's it's past, present, and the future. So Jesus calls his first disciples, um, which would have been kind of a ragtag group. These are the, the flunk outs of uh, theology school because uh, er- just about everybody would have gone through it. Um, but hey, they, they didn't cut it in terms of following a rabbi. Yet Jesus comes along and goes, no, you guys follow me and, and pulls out these ragtag fishermen who metaphorically will, will play a really good role because they're going to be fishers of men. This sort of this metaphor for changing their profession uh, to um, evangelism in a way. And um, it's hard to know their age. These guys are likely teenagers, maybe even just before teenage, uh, depending on how you kind of read their, 
cultural history, but um, yeah, it's, it's super interesting. Sort of this, this crowd that Jesus says, follow me. These are, yeah. these are not the, the people that everyone expected because Jesus isn't the rabbi that everyone expected. Yeah. And Matthew, he picks up on some of Mark's language and using this idea of immediacy. They all left immediately and followed him immediately. There's an immediacy required to our obedience. Yep. Like we even saw like delayed obedience is disobedience in yep. Israel. Yep. And so uh, we get to a paragraph that's kind of easy to pass over. It's just kind of a list of, of things that sometimes feels repetitive, but like it's important to know like this is the start of Jesus's ministry and who starts who showing up to, right away. It. It's like it, he, he, he finds the disease, the afflicted, the demonic possession, people with, with Caesars, the paralytics, and then crowds come from Galilee. It's great. That's the region he's in. Uh, the people that are absolutely pharisaic and committed to, to study the Torah, he, he people from the Decapolis, which is like it would have been unclean to even say Decapolis. So uh, mm-hmm. these are Greeks, these are outsiders. We covered this when we went through Luke. Um, th- these are the dirty Greeks are showing up, and then and then the Southerners show up too. The, the Sadducees and the folks from Judea. Now the Galilees and and the folks in the South they don't get along. This is like Northerners and Southerners in history in America, and so like no, they don't have very fond opinions of each other. And so um, this is not the the most cohesive group. It's a of bunch of people misfits. and yeah and and people on the fringes because of disease and suffering they would have been rejected culturally both by romans and by by um jews and then uh, a bunch of people who don't naturally get along to begin with and so this is the collection of people that the sermon on the mount basically starts with because jesus sees these crowds and he starts speaking yeah and so walking in jesus footsteps we uh he proclaimed and he healed and we can't always heal diseases in that same way but we can show mercy to those on the margins and with it we can proclaim the good news and the hope of christ well yeah and there's such a there's such a tension around the word healed because in 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 greek the the idea is also they're they're made whole Mm. and so um Sometimes that we, we read that and, and go immediately to the physical, and there's plenty of times where Scripture presents it absolutely as physical. But I think some of the healing work that we can do is also bringing like by Jesus' spirit, because he's the one who saves, but by bringing the gospel wholeness to people's lives. Yeah. So then Jesus goes to a hill and sits down. Yeah, that should sound teach. familiar. Something going up to a mountain and proclaiming, here's what God desires. Mm-hmm. Uh, this this is a callback absolutely uh, to the book of Exodus. Uh, yeah, there's a real similar structure and it begins by a blessing, reminders of God's blessing and grace, and it describes the way of life of people of God should live. And then there's kind of a blessing curse choice at the end. Super similar to what we read in the yeah. Old Testament. But but I do think the the intro here and and there's definitely a lot of interpretations and I could be wrong uh, and I'm I'm okay with that but he, when I read it, gosh I feel like given the context of Matthew going here's the crowds that started following Jesus and just about no one in the crowd or at least the majority of of sort of the broken the, the misfits the the paralytics the 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 diseased like no one would look to that crowd in any of the major cultures at the time and still to this day for a lot of us and go you guys are blessed i think everybody's like god's favor seems to be have left you for some reason and jesus looks to just the ragtag going no 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 no. the kingdom is at hand that is what jesus is preaching and saying no like you who are mourning and you who are poor in spirit you just feel like there's nothing like you you're you're you have no spirit left in you like that 
my kingdom is for you. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no position and power and certain things. It's not, his kingdom's not of this world. And he's opening the door that for so many kingdoms would have been a very narrow door. And he's sort of going, no, 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 I'm not defining this upon um, position and power and uh, influence and wealth and all that kind of stuff like that, that most kingdoms would have done. It's going to be like, look, the invitation is for all of you. As, as Dallas Willard said, blessed are the spiritual zeros, the spiritually bankrupt, the deprived, the deficient, the spiritual beggars, those without a wisp of religion when the kingdom of heaven comes upon them. And um, I think that's such an invitation in, and those that are going to interact with that. So people that are going to have to be made peacemakers in the midst of all that chaos and people that are um, going to, to seek out um, how to um, be meek and how to be merciful and all that kind of stuff. And so um, I, I just think it's this interesting introduction that we get of Jesus going, look, my kingdom is for everyone. Yeah. Like, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, I don't care whether you're mourning right now, God's favor can be there. It's it's right at your door. Repent, believe. And so I think that's the invitation. Yeah. I this The Beatitudes have just really stuck with me over the last week or so, and I find myself coming back to it throughout the day, thinking about what this looks like. And and I don't know, I kind of think looking at this that that possibly the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is a commentary on what the lives of these people who resemble the Beatitudes looks like. And we are in pretty tense times uh, right now in the United States. And as I'm praying and thinking about what's going on in our world with racial injustice and um, coronavirus and all these sorts of things, I keep coming back to the Beatitudes and and what it looks like and how upside down and backwards Jesus's kingdom was from what Israel saw right right then and even what we see in our nation right now, but um, the life of those who who believe that their reward is in heaven and who want to love the misfits and those on the margins uh, and the oppressed, it's it's going to look different. Yeah. And, and that's a warning because up to that point is blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. And then he turns to the disciples and is like, blessed are you. So if you're living this out, you are going to be persecuted, but, but don't, don't think that that's... Um, that's lacking of God's favor. No, the blessing is still there for you. Even, even as you live out this upside down kingdom and, and others hate you for it yeah. because you're trying to follow me, just know you are blessed. Yeah. And then it goes, all right, so let's talk a little bit about this upside down kingdom, yeah. starting with salt and light. Yeah. And, and so these nobodies, they're given value of saying like, look, like if you're my follower, like what you become, what is now your identity is that you're like salt and light. Um, and salt does things like, uh, does season things, but also purifies things against spoilage. So you would salt uh, to cure things and to drive out any impurities and disease and rot. And so, and light drives out darkness. It, it, it brings things into reality that is up to that point unseen. And so um, I, I think that's, those are pictures of our roles as believers. Yeah. I think, you know, my thoughts on this may be a little bit abstract to describe, but I think that those who live by the kingdom of God, like he talks about in the Beatitudes, are going to have an impact on the world around them. There is going to be something um, alive and in and eternal and more real about us. And it's just like salt magnifies the taste or experience of food or light illuminates what we can see in a dark place. Our presence as believers in this world, specifically to the perishing, is going to offer something true and eternal to those who are dying. And it's going to draw them in to want to glorify God. And I, yeah, I mean, I I just think that this idea of being salt and light is offering something true and eternal to a world that doesn't know which is true and eternal. And there's hope in that. Yeah. And and to look at people that have been rejected their whole lives and, and suddenly to go, you are light in this world. 
Um, I mean, gosh, what good news. Yeah, that's really good. Um, And then Jesus, I think, expecting the uh, question of being like, so are you throwing out everything that we know of, like in the past? Like you're redefining what is blessing and what is not in some ways and and who is in and who is out. And Jesus, are, are you abolishing the law? And Jesus is sort of, a, I think, preemptively addressing that, being like, I haven't come to abolish law. That's not my, my goal here. My, my goal is actually to fulfill it. And and he holds it up. He says, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes the least of these commandments and teaches others will do be called least. And whoever teaches them and, and, and does them will be called great. And, and I think what Jesus is doing is saying, look, like I've come to truly show you what the law actually is 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 going towards is driving towards what God's heart behind all of what the law was set up to do, mm-hmm. and and Jesus will fulfill it in terms of how he lives that he will live it out and live it out perfectly and in so doing um, fulfill the the requirement of the law for us. But at the same time, Jesus is also being like, look, if you want to see what God's heart and desire really is for his people and and how they change like watch me and listen to me like that is what um sort of the the play out i think of what jesus is dealing with here yeah i kind of liked thinking through this idea of dwelling you know the law was created in the torah so that god could dwell among his people and so they had this moral and civic and ceremonial law to keep so god could dwell among them and yet here we have jesus christ god himself dwelling among them in bodily form preparing the way for god to dwell within us through the holy spirit yeah And, and and hear me like there's the fulfillment of the law in terms of jesus um, living and doing all the things that we can't do perfectly. And in so doing, becoming um, our, our substitute, our, our the, his, his resume becomes our resume. But at the same time, the, 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 all these teachings, because Jesus is then about to go into, as you read, as, at least the start of, the very first of, of going, you've, you've heard it said, and he's going to deal with all the bad teachings and sort of the intent mm-hmm. of the law. But then when he is done with this whole sermon, his statement will be, and blessed are you, like, or, or the wise, you're wise if you do what I tell you to do. And so I think right. some ways, like certain um, theological groups, or at least certain pastors will overly spiritualize the Sermon on the Mount. And, and I do think that Jesus is going, hey, like, the, the radical nature of what I've called you to is that much deeper than you know. Mm-hmm. And it's going to take a new heart to actually do. Um, become like what the, the, the Sermon on the Mount is presenting. Uh, but at the same time, we are called to do it. And so, uh, we don't do it to become a disciple, but as a disciple, we do do it and we do live it out. And so, um, we, we see the very first application of, of Jesus' fulfillment of the law in this teaching on anger. Yeah. And so... Um, so I think what he's getting at here is your heart behind anger. When you feel angry at someone in certain ways, you are going to start to hold them in contempt. And when we hold someone in contempt, we immediately devalue their their dignity as a human being. And so there is a form of objectification that happens when we hold anger towards someone. Yeah. And and we'll see a lot of relational things play out in the Sermon on the Mount. And yeah, it's, it's that... It's that fixed anger just causes you to dehumanize uh, the other party. So be reconciled. And and if murder, 
the the idea of murder, the, the, what's presented in scripture is that it destroys the image of God. Like that yeah. is the offense of murder. And and Jesus is going, look, when you when you even name call and categorize and dehumanize people, like you are you are destroying the image of God in doing that as well. And so um, I think Jesus is making the equivalency in how that sort of fixed anger. Uh, portrays itself. Yeah. Not only are you to wait, like we are to be the initiators of reconciliation. If we have upset someone, if someone has something, if someone has anger towards us, we are to initiate the reconciliation there. Yeah. 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 To work both ways, whether we've offended or they've offended us, that we would be the reconcilers. Mm -hmm. Psalm 51. Um, Yeah. So this is pretty famously known for David and Bathsheba. We'll get there and read some other Psalms about that when we're at that point. But this is just a a really beautiful picture of what confession and repentance looks like, you know, and I I guess it kind of fits with Jesus saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And here we see a picture of what repentance and acknowledgement and ownership of sin for someone who should have known better is. Yeah. Yeah. Spurgeon calls it the sinner's guide. And and I kind of love sort of David wrestling through here where he's sort of like, look, like, you don't delight in any sacrifices. But, and if we read the law, like there's no sacrifice that David can bring to the table right now. Like his his judgment, his his response to sin should be that he gets stoned for this. Um, but he goes, look, you are after a contrite heart. And and what you do ultimately care about, yes, you care about sin, but you care about my heart. Mm-hmm. And um, and he's sort of acknowledging that, that God, God, look at the internal of me and, and create in me this clean heart. Like, cleanse me i don't want to live this sin and and restore to me so that i can and i love the evangelistic side of that restore me so that i can go proclaim to others yeah uh, about you understanding that his sin was against god alone but the impact was nationwide absolutely in his case in psalm 83 so uh, we definitely get someone who's uh, ready for God to fight his battles with him. Uh, sort of three requests for God to do something uh, in the midst of the rising of sort of all these enemies, these 10 different nations that are rising up against um, Israel and by proxy, God himself. Um, right. And the narrator sort of like, all right, God, I, we believe you're going to fight on our side. So, um, and I think it ends with this hopeful tone. It's sort of like that they may know that you alone are God. It says as if like, look, yes, you might, destroy them or, or might wipe out uh, or kill or give us victory in some way. But if, if, if what is accomplished in that is for that they know that you are truly God, like that is the end game. It seems like yeah. at least for the author. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't know his heart behind it. I don't know if it's, you know, like right. everybody will know that God is God at some point. It doesn't mean <laughs> they are true. all saved, but if he wants them to be saved, yeah. um, you know, it's like we just read in the Beatitudes, um, pray for those who persecute you. All right. Next week, Old Testament, All right, so when you keep reading the story of Gideon, just pay attention to his turning point from obedience to disobedience. What do you think caused it? Just spend some time thinking on uh, what circumstances or even what character internal behavior led him to kind of his downfall. And the New Testament, as you read the Sermon on the Mount, especially if you've been at Resonate, we've just taught through it, or our elders have just taught through it. Think about not only the personal application, but why Matthew specifically included those instructions to illustrate Jesus as the Messiah. Yeah. And for me, uh, as you get to the Old Testament, as you read sort of through the Samson story, like think through the theme of like revenge and what attitude Samson does uh, or has about revenge, things he says and whether like he is right. I think it's portraying the the uh, uh, uh the the avoid the thing to avoid when it comes to the idea of revenge. And and then as we get into the New Testament, um 
Really think about how radical some of the stuff Jesus is saying around like mm-hmm. justice and enemy love and stuff like that. Like Israel has been in captivity now for almost 750 years wow. with various forms of oppressors and Rome is not exactly the greatest uh, in town. And um, there's plenty of enemies and there's plenty of legitimate enemies and there's plenty of reasons for them to be angry and frustrated. So when Jesus is like, as I talk about enemies, everybody's ears probably perked up and then he's going to say something that would have been so radical for them to hear. So that's it for this week. And thanks y'all. Thank you. Thank you.